top of the hour here, market call, 1 p.m. Eastern time. I'm Guy Adami. I'm always joined by Dan Nathan. Today's market call brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. I love that because there's a lot of risk out there. Stands to reason there's a lot of opportunity. We are powered by Open Exchange. You can find them at Open Exchange TV on your Twitter. Before we get going, Dan, a little bit of housekeeping. I've been a Ranger fan since the early 1970s. And I will tell you without equivocation that last night's performance was in the top three most embarrassing games I've witnessed. Better be better tomorrow night. Back to you, Dan. Yeah, buddy. You you and I had talked, and uh, in the first period, it looked like, uh, again, uh, you were very optimistic. And when I turned the game on, it was, what, 6-2 or something like that in the third. And I felt felt for you, Guy Adami. At least you have your Yankees. I know it's May. You don't get too geeked up about baseball in May. And I know that just the fact that the Mets are also leading the East in the NL just kind of just makes it that much less uninteresting for you because I know that you're rooting harder against the mm-hmm. Mets than you are for the Yankees in May. All right, guy, let's get to it, man. Like, you know, yesterday was a bit of a bloodbath. And, um, you know, you and I at one o'clock yesterday were really trying to find maybe some silver linings and there just weren't too many. And I know if you're sitting here listening to me say that, you're like, wait, you guys sounded really negative yesterday. The point being, there wasn't much to grasp for if you were a bull. Is that correct? No question about it. And, you know, again, negative, positive, good day, bad day in the market. Yeah. I, I try and I know you do as well. We try to leave the adjectives out. Because I think that sort of clouds it. And I've said this a thousand times, and I'll say it for the thousand and first time. If you're looking for cheerleaders and pom-poms, you've come to the wrong place. That's not what we do here. We just try to lay out some of the things that we think are happening. And I'll tell you, um, Upstart to me, which is down another, I think, what, 30-something percent today. This stock was a $400 stock in October. And I'm using this as an example. Guys, it's down 60%. 60% now. So it's down Today. Think, from peak to trough, over 90%. Or so. My point is this. In the fall, um, CNBC had an interview with a gentleman that was talking about Upstart and how much he loved the stock. It was trading $392. And quite frankly, he didn't know what the hell it was, which is fine, by the way. I mean, you can bet on horses that you don't know if yeah. they're good or bad. And you like the name. And sometimes you're going to win based solely on that. But the point is that was to me was the peak of absurdity. And quite frankly, that proved to be right. So again, I point that out because that was the market we had, and we clearly have a much different market now, one that makes a little more sense to me at least. Well, it's interesting. You know, Guy, I tweeted this earlier today, and you know, I was looking at the upstart disaster, and we've had no shortage of them, and we highlighted a bunch of them on Market Call last week. Over the last, let's just say, few weeks, we've seen a bunch of down 30, 40, you know, some 50% in a day. This one's down 60. And, you know, I guess the point I would just make is that when you see some of the reckonings that we're seeing in some of these names that no one cared about as they were skipping up $50, $100 a month or whatever it was at, you know, valuations that just didn't make sense, you know, now we're having a bit of a a bloodletting. And and I would say that a lot of people are going to point to these and say, well, this means that we're close to a bottom. This means capitulation. And I would say, nah, because just basically these sorts of disasters are going to come in all shapes and sizes. Think about Facebook. been cut in half. It was a trillion dollars, you know, six months ago. Think of Netflix has gone from 700 to 170. These are real names. This is not a BS name like Carvana or Upstart. So, you know, to me, 
I, I just think that, again, if you're kind of looking at some of these things and saying, oh, we have to be close, the history of bear markets, and I'm going to use that phrase, is that time is the thing, is overshooting to the downside, just like we overshot to the upside, valuation compression until things get too cheap. You know, those are all really, um, I think, important narratives. Now, you know, let's just talk about bear markets, Guy. You've traded through a few of them. I have traded through a few of them. They feel excruciating for a long period of time. And that, I think, is the major, you know, kind of quotient here. If you have I think we have like a little bit of a chart here showing the 14, you know, post-war, post-World War II bear markets. On average, they last about a year. So here it is. The S&P is down about 17%. That's from just January. So, and you and I know that there's dozens, if not hundreds of stocks that have been bear markets for more than a year, but give it to me about a bear market because it really isn't until all of the major names have reached that point and have stayed down and gotten too cheap is when we could probably say we're close to the bottom. This goes back to what Carter Worth's talked about for a while. And, you know, the last shooter drop is sort of the generals in this market. And obviously, listen, in the form of the generals, we've clearly seen it with Amazon. I think to a certain extent, we've seen it with Microsoft. We've seen it with Google. The really only one we haven't really seen it with yet is Apple. And that's probably going to be the last rung taken out. You know the levels that I've been watching at 138 level, which was the October of last year low. With that said, um, duration is important. I think this might be interesting, and it's just my opinion. I think things move a lot faster these days than they did even five years ago or 10 years ago. So I think through that lens, uh, this bear market does not necessarily need to be the duration of historical ones. I think things get flushed out a lot faster. We'll see. But to your point about dozens, if not hundreds of stocks, I mean, this goes back to last summer. There are a multitude of stocks that have crashed. The only thing, and I'm not suggesting the market's about to, but the only thing that really hasn't um, come to fruition to the downside has been the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. You're starting to see that happen right before our very eyes. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, this morning, the futures were kind of rocking and rolling a little bit after such a really bad day yesterday, our friend Liz Young at SoFi, she tweeted out um, just, you know, only 16% of NASDAQ stocks, NASDAQ stocks are trading above their 200-day moving average, getting close to levels of prior market bottoms, 02, 09, 18, 2020. Uh, she goes, still won't call it, but if you like... Uh, if you like watching these indicators, here you go. My response to her was 02, 09, 18, 2020. These were all periods of really, other than 18, but we had a big pivot of accommodation of the Fed, right? And so what's different this time is that the Fed has pointed out that they're aggressively hiking. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this downward volatility. So sometimes it is a bit different this time. And Guy, give, give it to me on that. Because I mean, you remember 02, you know, 02 felt worse than 01. You remember 09, the start of it, and much of 08 felt worse than 07 and the start of, you know, 07. And then 2020 was just a weird one, right? Because we had all of that monetary and fiscal stimulus that got us out of that bear and that's what the hope is here i would imagine if the market goes low enough these you know fed officials that turned hawkish in november will flip back to being dovish i just don't think that's happening anytime soon they've tried it out enough people loretta mester being the last one earlier today that it basically said hey look if you look you know i'm paraphrasing here without question but i will do that you know, if you're looking for us to be the savior for the market, look someplace else, because that's not our mandate anymore, at least for the foreseeable future. So why is it different this time? Because the Fed is no longer underwriting yeah. this market. And you know what? About time, I would say, at least you have some price discovery. And again, it's painful, 
But it's important. Markets are getting back to some semblance of normalcies. Bond markets notwithstanding, I've said this 100 times, the bond market's broken. I mean, we see now 15 basis point moves on an hourly basis in the 10-year, yeah. which defies logic. But that's probably for another show. Yeah, well, we'll hit rates in a sec because I actually think you called it right yesterday when we were talking at this time about the rate move. I think the 10-year got to 3.2. We saw that reversal. And you've been saying that we are likely to see a flight to quality. We'll check the levels there really quickly. But, you know, Guy, you mentioned, uh, you know, Meister's comments this morning. I don't know if that's exactly what turned it. I think people are looking for excuses to sell, right? right. And so I think that's really important. When you have a gap up of 2.5% in the NASDAQ after yesterday and people are finally realizing they got some problems in their portfolio, they use that opportunity to sell. So we had that big intraday reversal. I'll just mention this, that, you know, the S&P right now is down a little bit. It's basically back to unchanged almost or so. The NASDAQ has been holding in there, Microsoft, Apple, and Google all up 1%. I think that does it despite the fact there's a lot of damage under the hood. But look at the NASDAQ futures here, guy. And this is, you know, going back to the start of 2020. And I drew a couple lines here, okay? Here we are, just above 12,000. It gets us back to those kind of two highs that we had in the fall of 2020 um, before we really started to take off after the election and after the vaccine news. But I kind of see so many stocks retracing all the way back to their Feb 2020 highs, pre-pandemic crash levels. And I got to tell you, if the NASDAQ futures go through this 12,000 level, there's an air pocket, man, maybe down to 11,000 and as low as 10,000, which is just above that uh, high from February 2020. Give me your take on the NASDAQ, because again, to quote what you just said about Carter, we're waiting for those generals to really participate, get down more than 20%, and maybe go down 30% from their highs. And that probably does it. Yeah, it's been a textbook reversal since obviously November, December, when you know, lower left, upper right, following the 200-day moving average as if it were a trend line, finally broke, traded through it significantly, traded back up to it and failed. Now here we are, 200-day rolling over without question. You can see that I can as well. Leads me to believe there's another leg lower. I'll say this. I'm glad you brought up these uh, NASDAQ futures, Dan, because it looks like you're broadcasting right in front of the NASDAQ tower, which is amazing. People haven't interrupted you yet to say, hey, you're Dan Nathan from CNBC's Fast Money. Good for you. You must have like security or something there. Well, you know what's really funny, guy? So this is my background right here. I'm, I'm kind of hunkered down in uh, in a room in my home because uh, I'm on COVID protocols oh. here. Uh, second time in six months there. How about that guy? But here, look at this. So look at when I changed my head. You see who's up there? That's oh, look me. at that. So one day in back in 2016, you and I are walking off the set of, of uh, Fast Money and we're on a floor in the NASDAQ and a guy comes up to me, really nice guy. He says, hey, here, he hands me the Wall Street Journal. I'm like, dude, I already read it online. Like, what are you, like my parents? You know what I mean? With the actual paper or like you. He goes, no, look at B1. There was a story about the NASDAQ. That picture was up there and it just so happened to me and B, which is kind of cool, don't you think? That's that's balls, as you would say. That's <laughs> tremendous. You can keep doing that. It's like you're there. I mean, yeah. that's... The technology these days is really just fascinating. Well, Amanda Diaz really liked that. But let, let, let's go to the S&P futures here, Guy, because if you look at that same chart that we did since the start of 2020, you see that relative outperformance there. We know that the NASDAQ 100 is very heavy on um, technology. All, dozens of those names are down 50, 60, 70 percent. But we do have a handful of those top names. You know, if you think about Microsoft and Apple guy are 24% of the NASDAQ 100. They're about, I don't know, 16 or 17% of the S&P 500. And you look at this thing here and you see a lot of room down to your target level, which was you thought we'd hit 
4,000 first, and then you think there's valuation risk down to 3750 or something like that. But if you get back to that September 1st, 2020 high, that brings you to what, 3550 or so overshooting. And I think you're trying to be a little bit conservative because you know that markets can overshoot to the downside once they get yeah. ahead of steam. No, no, no question about it. I mean, I've meant, listen, I've been saying this, I think, since the fall that 3750 seemed to be logical place in terms of just the math to get us there. You know, as rates go higher, you have to reevaluate what the metric is and what the multiple you'll pay for earnings is. 17 seems to be a logical level. I mean, historically, that's a pretty fine valuation or multiple for the S&P 500 earnings. It stands to reason this rising rate environment, we should get back to the norm. To your point about overshooting, absolutely. I mean, without question, the market has overshot to the upside a number of times. It stands to reason we'll do that to the downside, but you sort of got to crawl before you can walk. Yeah. So I think 3750 is a logical uh, stopping place, but there are other people out there, and I've heard 3500 from a number of people. As a matter of fact, I think David Tepper today uh, earlier today, I heard there were thoughts from him that 3550, 3600 would yeah. be a level that would pique his interest. So if he's looking at it, I think it's something that should be on everybody's radar screen. Yeah, and that was an interesting. I don't know if it was an interview. I know that Jim Cramer was um, had a conversation with him, and he was basically saying that he covered his shorts. And I think near term, he probably feels like things have gotten pressed, but he sees much lower lows. And I'll just say this, you know, and I think you and I are in agreement. If we are going to go down to those levels, it's going to be because the major tech names are leading to the downside. They finally play some catch up. And I thought I wanted to get your take on the VIX here, guy, because look at this thing. Thing. It's had a sustained period above 30 over the last couple of weeks here. And it really feels like it wants to break out here and get above 40, which it hasn't really gotten to um, since I think 2020, um, but not on many occasions there. And so to me, you know, this might be a really good indicator that we're near capitulation. If we have another leg lower in the S&P, you have a VIX above 40, just kind of screaming, that might be the thing that indicates a near term sort of reversal. And again, I think you and I are in agreement that we're not going to V reverse because the V reversals that we've seen in the post-financial crisis have been when the Fed has been very accommodative. They're doing the opposite right now. How do you use the VIX as an input? Again, this is you and me trying to be a bit of a Sherpa for some of our viewers and listeners here, because again, it's not something that we are actively trading the VIX. Very few people do that, but it's a good input. I didn't mention uh, market call bingo yesterday, but I can almost guarantee nobody yeah. has Sherpa or the most famous Sherpa of all time, one Tenzik Norgay, who helped Sir Edmund Hillary, he was just Edmund Hillary at the time, summit Mount Everest. To, to that end, though, in terms of me being your Sherpa here, yeah. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that the VIX is not higher today. I mean, on the one hand, it's probably a good thing, obviously, because the VIX is not backing up this reversal today. On the flip side, you could say a lot of people sort of front run this in terms of owning the protection and they're taking it off now. So, you know, maybe people were getting ready for this sell-off, and that's why the VIX isn't escalating the upside. So you could actually say that this might actually be a bad thing because we're just destined for another leg higher in the VIX. And I would think capitulation for the broader market takes place on a VIX north of 40. We're not there yet. No doubt about it. Um, you know, it's just worth keeping an eye on because it is hanging out there. And I think that's a great point. If people are all hedged up here, um, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? That might be the very thing. Let's take a look at small caps for a second and talk about them. Because again, you and I have kind of been all over this 
group. We haven't spoken about them in a while because there's not much to talk about. We obviously think that, you know, they're much more um, subjective to a slowdown, um, you know, an economic slowdown. Obviously, credit is is a bit more of a, an issue on small caps than it is for larger caps. You know, we have this index down 27%, the Russell 2000, um, on the year. And it's really gotten all the way back to that kind of breakout or breakdown level from February 2020 guy. And, you know, if you're a measured move sort of sort of person. We had this move from the lows in the pandemic, okay, from just below 1,000, right, back to that prior 1750 level, and then we got as high as 2450. I mean, you see what's going on there. We're almost at the exact midpoint of this two and a half year range, and I think, you know, you you had keyed on this a couple times in 2020 and 2021, you said this is the most important chart because you think it's going to lead, and it has led. What do you think it means right here at the midpoint of this two and a half year period and where we are with the S&P, which both of you and I are in agreement. We don't think 16.5% down in the year encapsulates all of the stuff that we've been through and we're about to go through with the economy. Well, everything we've talked about for the last 15 minutes and to a large extent for the last six months leads us to believe, leads lead me to believe that the Russell or RTY in this case is due for another leg lower. I mean, again, you're talking about the most economically sensitive names. We're talking about a period of time where clearly there's going to be a slowdown here. People talking recession, I have no idea. But again, with the Fed raising rates into a slowdown, it's a bit of a witch's brew for the small cap name. So maybe we have found support here in the short term. But I do think there's another leg lower, which should theoretically lead the broader market lower as well. Other than that false breakout we saw, and by the way, Carter Worth flagged that at the time, I think it was in November or December, yeah. when the Russell, the RTY, had that little spike higher. I mean, this is an index that had done nothing uh, for the previous six to nine months, and now here we are rolling over. It's just it's really important to have this up. I mean, there are a number of things that should be on your screen without question. RTY is one of them, or IWM, if you look at that. I've said it a number of times. I think the LQD uh, or the HYG should be up as well. And obviously, we'll talk about the dollar and rates. But those things, yeah. to me, are somewhat leading indicators. Well, here's the biggest leading indicator, I think, at least for the stock market volatility that we've had over the last week or really over the last month and change or so is, you know, we keep a close eye on the CME Fed Watch tool and we have a June meeting and we have a July meeting and both are pricing greater than an 80% chance of a 50 basis point hike at both. That's basically the consensus right now. And so we're going to keep a really close eye on that to see what is it the lower the market goes, maybe the worst economic data mm -hmm. gets, maybe you see that percentage percentage kind of move down on 50 and move towards 25. I think you'd be in the camp guy if that were the case. Okay, if yields were to come in and people were, you know, reaching for treasuries because they're worried about, you know, a global economic slowdown and then the rate expectation, the rate hike expectations come in, not exactly bullish for the economy. No, not at all. And listen, you know, I think people would say a market moving lower, <laughs> and again, this is what I think a lot of market participants think or hope or the market continues to crater here, and that's going to force the Fed's hand. In other words, it's going to keep them from being as hawkish as they want to be. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. And we're going to get a CPI print, by the way, which is going to be really interesting, because I think we find ourselves in an environment where, you know, maybe we hit peak inflation in terms of the absolute number a month or so ago, maybe. But as I've said a number of times, there are a couple other words that start with PE, and that would be pesky and persistent. And I think that's what we're looking at right now. So, they're on the course and they have to yeah. stay the course. And if they get spooked by the market, that's a problem, number one. And I do think yields can go lower in this sort of flight to quality. 
which I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing either. So it's it's you know there used to be an environment for the market where no matter what happened, it was bullish. Now I sort yeah. of find myself in a camp where it's almost as if no matter what happens, it's sort of bearish, and we'll see if that plays out. Yeah, so you talk about that move in the yields in the 10-year, and you talk about the, the, the Fed getting spooked, right, by that. The last time we saw that was in late 2018, and, and the 10-year got you know close to 3.25%. Well, yesterday, it ticked 3.2%. Mm-hmm. We have a 10-year chart of this thing. Man, oh, man, I mean, that that is a level, right? We basically went from 50 basis points in the uh, summer of 2020 up here to three percent or so three three twenty yesterday i mean it's 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 kind of hard to see this thing busting out if the data guy mm-hmm. if if some of the prints start to get like you know they start to decelerate to the upside or go lower or so but i guess it, it really is this 30-year chart going back to 1990 this is a long chart what do you what do you make of the price action because again even if it makes a slightly higher high from 2018, it lines up against that 30-year downtrend, which is just about there at three and a quarter percent. Still intact. You've talked about it. Carter's talked about it. And again, to go back to that prior chart real quick, if we could toggle back, that's yeah. and that's maybe toggle. Be high there in you your go. Bingo. There you go. No, I'll, I'll say this. You know, 2018. I mean, rates went lower because you know why? The Fed completely did a pivot. They got browbeat yep. by the then administration that was seemingly every day talking about how the Fed didn't have their back and how we should have lower rates so we could be competitive. Blah blah blah. And then the market spooked them as well. That's why rates went down then. <coughs> and obviously, the market went higher. Why rates would potentially go down now is for none of those reasons. I think rates would go down now is a form of a flight to quality, as you mentioned earlier. The only way there's going to be a flight to quality is if the market continues to go lower. So it's completely different scenarios in the encapsulation, yeah. basically, the last three and a half years. No doubt. All right. David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Rosie, Research, friend of Rosie, friend of ours. He was on our podcast with me and you on the tape podcast. People check it out. In your podcast stores, it dropped on Friday. We had a great conversation with him um, about what he sees for the economy. He's not particularly bullish here, to be very clear. Um, but this tweet this morning was really interesting. Guy, he said he's he's tiring of fielding calls about what's wrong with gold. Answer: Nothing. It's about a twenty-year high U.S. dollar. Gold has actually done better than most other currencies year to date. It's up ten percent versus the euro, up eleven percent versus the pound, and fifteen percent versus the yen. Now, again, okay, fine, Rosie. Um, I don't. I don't really disagree with that. We're going to throw up uh, a one-year chart, though, of the gold futures versus the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index. And you see that divergence. You see the Dixie just going ballistic, right, trading at those 20-year highs. We know that half the Dixie is the euro. We know that the euro is unusually weak for a whole host of reasons. But I would say with inflation readings at all-time highs, guy, uh, or at like 40-year highs, you know, gold is not exactly doing what you would hope it to do in this environment, correct? No, I agree with that 100%. We should be much better. We should have blown through those previous highs we yeah. made a couple Augusts ago. We actually traded up to it and failed, which, you know, technicians will say classic double top. And that's true. And I'm trying not to be dogmatic here. It's hard for me not to be. But I'll say this. If you do see a flight to quality in the form of yields going lower, that could somewhat slow down the dollar's rise to the upside, yeah. which may give um, clearance for gold to go higher. So I know what David is saying in terms of relative to other currency, gold's done okay, but in absolute terms, it hasn't done well at all. And in an environment where it should be performing, it's done anything but. Maybe it's getting caught up in the rest of this commodity sell-off on the back of a potential global slowdown, all those different things. But I'll say it for the hundredth time. I still believe that gold's going to have its day. 
Maybe it's with crypto breaking down. We'll see. I mean, we talk about Bitcoin all the time. Obviously, that's at pretty critical levels. But I do think there's a place for gold and gold will not only have its day in the sun, but I think it will have an extended period of time in the sun. Yeah, well, the Dixie, though, guy is at a really crucial level mm -hmm. here at 104. And you look at it, it that's, is that's at, what I'm saying. 20, yep. at 20 year highs. So your point is, is if we were to see yields come in for some technical reasons, um, you might see that dollar kind of pull back, back and fill or so. That makes um, some sense for me. But the, the flip side of that is if Europe was to go into a recession and the war in Ukraine lasts much longer and we see, you know, just kind of these kind of inflation, inflationary pressures, you know, kind of increase that you know the dollar is going higher right it's that simple so but let's go to your gold here because we're looking at the gold futures and i drew a couple lines and i'd love to get your take here look at november you had the call there it broke out of this downtrend that it had been in since the highs in 2020 guy mm -hmm. and at the time it was trading it looked like it was about to make a new high from earlier in the year it was right around the time when the fed pivoted right they kind of changed their tune on inflation but then we saw that quick drawdown well here we are you know gold futures are below those levels you see that 200 day moving average 1835 i'd say technically it's kind of at an important level after that kind of big blow off top that we saw above 2050 in march got to hold 1750 1800 without question you still have an upwardly sloping 200 day which is a good thing but again it's critical literally critical for it to hold these levels and get a meaningful bounce and Listen, it's happened before. I mean, you go back and look at this chart. When it was below it, we traded up to it and failed. And when it's been above it, you know, we've traded back down to it and bounced. I happen to yeah. think that this is one of those times we're going to trade down to it and bounce. We'll see how it plays out. I wish I could tell you the catalyst. I do not know. Again, maybe it's a, a continued sell-off in Bitcoin that somehow manifested in the gold going higher or a broader market sell-off, which in the short term is negative for gold, but maybe long-term bullish for gold. I don't know. Or it is the dollar sort of topping out here with yields potentially going lower. There are a number of scenarios to me that can give gold sort of that go from headwind to tailwind. We just haven't yep. found them yet, Dan. Yeah. And it's, you know, go go back and look at this gold chart, though, from all the way back to, um, you know, 2010 or so when you saw that huge ramp in the post-financial crisis. And what did that have to do with? It had to do with the Fed you know, just basically going through, you know, scores of not scores, but but different iterations, right, of QE, they lowered interest rates to zero, and you saw gold did have its moment. Well, here we are, you know, over the last kind of two and a half years or so, we're kind of flagging here, you know, and maybe it's just destined to be in this big range guy until there is some sort of definitive answer on what, like what Bitcoin serves. I don't know if we could pull the Bitcoin chart up here right now. When I look at this thing, guy, and you and I have been talking about it, I think we've had a couple hungry alligator formations on the market call over the last few months. You know what that is. That's that kind of uptrend and then that kind of support level, which was back at 30. And we thought, both of us thought, just from a technical level, you and I know uh, very little about the Bitcoin. I mean, we think we probably know a little bit enough to be dangerous at thinking about it as a macro asset, right? But that chart has not been great for a while. And when you look at this thing right here, we know that last summer, you know, it spent a little time in that 28 to 30,000 range that was also the low in early 2021. There's not a whole heck of a lot of support down to 20,000 if you get through there. Curious on your thoughts because, listen, I, I, you know, you and I know a lot of really, really smart people who are very into Bitcoin, much smarter than us in tech and in finance. And the problem that I have right now 
is that it seems like almost every pillar of the bull case guy has been kicked out from under the chair here, if you will, right? So talk to me about this thing where it like relates to a macro asset. It seems very correlated to high growth, high valuation tech. It doesn't seem to do the things that it was meant to do as it relates to inflation. So curious your take here, because it's at a very, very key support level. And the last point, and you and I know less about this, but you know our friend Danny Moses, who's our co-host on, on the Tape Podcast, he won't shut up about what lies beneath with Tether and these stable coins. And he thinks there's a real issue there. And there's plenty of people who think so on the Twitter. And if they're thinking on the Twitter, then it must be true. I'm just kind of kidding in a way. Um, But it seems like there's a lot of narratives that are being um, really kind of challenged right now. And the charts don't look great. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned them being linked to these high valuation, high growth tech names. I agree with that. But what both of them are linked to is a Federal Reserve that was, again, extraordinarily accommodative for years. Effectively, if you think about it, I mean, when was Bitcoin born? 2009, 2010, right around there. You know better than I do. But what I'll say is it was born out of this fear that central bankers have run amok. So Bitcoin enthusiasts have never seen a Federal Reserve that's been anything but accommodative until, oddly enough, November of last year. When did Bitcoin top out? Oddly enough, around November, December of last year. I don't think it's coincidental that Bitcoin has been more than cut in half when our Federal Reserve has gone from extraordinarily dovish to remarkably hawkish and, and quite frankly, correctly so. Now, what's the bull case for Bitcoin here? Well, it's exactly what I just said. If this Fed blinks for whatever reason, be it market or otherwise, that to me is a catalyst to send Bitcoin not back to the all-time highs, but maybe the trip to um, six-digit types of numbers. And we'll see if that plays out. And I think, quite frankly, I think that's what a lot of Bitcoin... um, observers, enthusiasts, investors are waiting for. That's what they're waiting for. Yeah. All right. Listen, one last topic here. I think this is a really, really important one. And I think there's a lot of investors that the energy space has been a bright spot, right? In a very difficult market for this year. And you've been all over this trade for over a year, you know, the crude chart looked really interesting a couple days ago. It really looked like it was holding that uptrend and it looked like it wanted a rip. And you and I, I think yesterday in the market call, we talked about the relative outperformance that we saw in the XLE, which is the large integrated and OIH, which is a lot of the services names, and they've traded really well. Here's the deal. This is at a really crucial spot on the chart. And we know that a lot of crude traders, especially in the futures, they use charts for their levels, their stops, that sort of thing, guy. We also just talked about the dollar and we know the relationship between the dollar and crude. And just saying the backdrop of everything that we've just talked about is you and I are both in agreement. We are not economists, but we think that the global economy is slowing. So in 2014, 15, 16, when the Fed was coming off of ZERP and they were ending their quantitative easing and possibly moving towards quantitative tightening, we saw the dollar rip. It went from 80, the Dixie to 100 and crude oil got cut in half. It went down 65%. Now it got really bad at times when there were fears about global growth. So think about all of that. And that's all going on right now. So my question to you is crude vulnerable here. Okay. If we continue to have lockdowns in China and the war continues, now, I guess the war is a different thing than the lockdowns in China. If anything, it could create different demand dynamics. But my point is if the global economy is slowing and the dollar stays bid, is that bad for crude? And what is it saying about the macro picture? No, well, that's clearly a leading question. You're exactly right. Under those circumstances, it's really bad for crude. So that 85 level-ish, which is the 200-day moving average, comes into play, especially if this uptrend line is taken out, which, you know, listen, we're right on the precipice now. I think a lot of this move, a lot of the volatility, a lot of the moves sort of 
lower since that spike high has been predicated on this China shutdown, which you have to believe at some point is going to end. And we'll see what happens if and when that does happen for crude. If the dollar starts to turn around and go lower, that headwind that it's creating for crude could be a tailwind. But to your point, if we're on this global slowdown, which a lot of people think we're on the cusp of, crude should not be spared. So what's the answer? Well, critical, we hold this trend line, close through this trend line, it looks like 85 is inevitable. Yeah, and just like like we brought up the VIX, trying to be the Sherpas here, you know, these are important inputs, I think, to keep an eye on here. So um, I'll just leave it at that. I mean, listen, you know, Guy, you and I have been doing Market Call now all year, every day, Monday through Thursday. Um, we do our podcasts. We go on Fast Money. Um, we talk we're in other places. Place. We are all over the place. I mean, really, you know, we're not your hedge fund manager. You know, we're not your stockbroker. We're not your advisor. We're really just kind of calling it like we see it. And I will tell you, in periods like this, you know, we take no pleasure in being right about some of this stuff that's going on here and maybe that's one of the reasons why we're a little bit more amped up on days like last wednesday when the market's screaming for no good reason um when in days like today or the last few days we think it makes a bit more sense here but i don't know i'll just leave you at that i mean um you know again we're just trying to point out some things that we think might be under the radar but important to kind of help uh, help your framework here we're not your stockbroker i've never been to lake success um as a matter oh. of fact i don't even know where lake success is jordan belfort is watching maybe you learned something there junior and you stop ripping people off but that's it for market <laughs> call today 132 as i look at my watch i want to thank our sponsor cme group i love this where risk meets opportunity and as i mentioned at the top of the show there's a lot of both out there at Open Exchange. Check them out on the Twitter. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. God only knows if you're Beach Boys fans out there where the market will be then. Catch you later. See ya.